Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm joined today by my co-host, Diana Clark, and we have a wonderful guest, Dorothy Whitmarsh. Welcome, Dorothy. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Arden. It's really nice to be here. So for our listeners or our viewers, now that we're on video, I thought I'd give a little bit of background. Dorothy is a native New Yorker with two grown daughters. She's the graduate of Brown University and holds an MBA from New York University's Stern School of Business. She retired from Wall Street in 1989, and she has been on several boards, including the Chapin School in New York City, where she was a corporate trustee for over 20 years the Duchess Land Conservancy, the National Eating Disorders Association, and the Republican Majority for Choice. Dorothy's experience as the mother of a child with ADHD and bipolar disorder led to her interest in educating others about the experience of families touched by these issues. And over the years, Dorothy has consulted with numerous families on a pro bono basis, um, talking about how to deal with the challenges of learning, eating, and mood disorders in their children. In addition, Dorothy was a member of the National Council at McLean Hospital in Boston for several years while her daughter was treated there. So Dorothy, I'm gonna open up with just a general question. Can you share with those who are tuning in what it was like to be a family member with a daughter struggling with behavioral health issues? Okay, well, it's a very big question because actually there was something a little different about our eldest daughter from the get-go. And it appeared first as learning issues, ADHD, and then progressed into what appeared to be depression. And then her first uh, manic episode, uh, mixed manic episode was when she was about 19. So. I think our experience was similar to many families in that it unfolds and you don't really know what you're seeing. Uh, this is a field, the mental health field is very difficult to know where the right help is and how to find it. The families I've spoken to are in crisis. Something's happened. The daughter has not eaten for four weeks in a row or the son has admitted that he wants to kill himself uh, and on and on it goes. So uh, what I began to do was to, to give feedback to the families from what I'd learned over the years, uh, which was trying to not diagnose their child, but to help them find the resources in their community uh, as a starting point. It's very confusing and usually you're looking for resources at the very moment when you are least mm -hmm. capable of doing that because you are understandably incredibly upset about what your child's going through. And you are simply on a different planet than anyone else you know. 
And so that's why I fielded so many phone calls from friends who had friends, because just being able to talk to somebody that you know uh, is worth a lot. So as somebody who believes, and welcome, Dorothy, I'm so glad to see you on this. Thank you, Diane. Hear your voice. As somebody who has navigated this journey with a family member, you know, and I know that it impacts everybody and not everybody operates their best throughout this journey. What kinds of things, how has this impacted your family in good ways and in ways that stressed it? Mm-hmm. So I would have to say the stress side of the balance sheet is the larger one. <laughs> uh, it is enormously disruptive to families. It's uh, alcoholism is the same. Any major illness actually disrupts the family dynamic. And an inordinate amount of attention and time is devoted to the one that appears sick. And of course, the siblings that appear normal are getting less attention. So that can play out in lots of different ways. Sadly, uh, my marriage fell apart and I heard an alarming statistic about the percentage of families who experience divorce as a result of, or not as a result of, but uh, who also have a child with a major illness, regardless of illness. And it's about 80%. So the, the problem is, even if someone had said all of this to me at the beginning of it and said, you know, you really got to watch out for that younger one and pay attention to your husband, I don't know how much of this you can really, uh, uh, can really affect. Um, I think marriages that are fragile fall apart more easily than those that are strong. Mm-hmm. And you also don't have the time. You simply can't do it all. And the priority has got to be the person on the floor who's in trouble, <laughs> uh, not the people that are that are standing. And I think that's what makes this so difficult. And you can't take a pill and make it go away. This is a neurological condition. So it's a question of everybody managing it and the patient in particular, or the affected one, I should say, not the patient. Uh, I know in my daughter's case, uh, there is nothing like growing up to improve the odds of managing it. And she makes much clearer headed decisions at 32 than she did at 19, like most of us. Uh, But it definitely helps her deal with it. I'm going to bring up a very trendy topic, and I have a feeling you may laugh when I ask, but, uh, you know, because it feels like just based on what you just said, such a ridiculous question. But how did you think, or did you even think about self care during that time? You know, I did think about self care uh, because it's part of what I've always done. So for me, exercise uh, is self-care. And uh, I like to play tennis because I can do that with friends and laugh for an hour and a half or two. And uh, I get a psychic kick and I get exercise and all of that works. So that has always been very important to me. Uh, And I think for people that have self-care built into their routine, they are going to be more resilient through this than people who don't have that. Oxygen mask on first, 
Sorry I'm to interrupt. First. You know, I just remember that yeah. from my early days of flying. And uh, I remember I used to think, really, the mother gets to breathe first? But now I understand mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. And what we know is that if you don't take care of yourself, what are the odds you're going to be able to have any resources available to the people who need it in your life? Not very great. Indeed. I, I think most mothers, yeah, most mothers, I think, have that, whether they think about it or not. I think that's inherent. Mm -hmm. We're hardwired to do that, I think. So let's take the go back in the Wayback Machine for just a little bit. When your daughter first started showing symptoms, what was your focus? Was it more on the symptoms or was it more on the diagnosis? And did that change over a period of years as you described your journey? Mm. So I, I like to fix things that look broken. So I'm looking for an answer. And uh, you've got ADHD, let's go get a tutor. Uh, let's put you in the front of the room so the teacher can make eye contact with you. When my eldest descended into seriously deep depression, and that's how her bipolar manifests itself, is mostly on the depression side. Uh, I was looking for somebody who could explain it. And my husband and I went and got a second opinion and we didn't like what we heard. We also didn't have a lot of faith in who uh, gave us the second opinion. And so we fell back to what was familiar. The diagnosis, over the years has included a crazy number of potential uh, sim uh, syndromes. And I think what I, I absorbed out of that was that the adolescent body, which is developing and horm hormones are changing and hormones are like gas on a flame when it comes to mental health issues. Uh, her illness manifested itself differently through time. And at its most severe, she had uh, psychotic thinking, but there are myriad conditions that can lead to psychotic thinking. So there mm -hmm. was no answer for why it was. They started to try and eliminate things by addressing symptoms. It is very frustrating for a family and also for an affected one to not have that clarity. And of course, the one who suffers is the one also who has to absorb that idea that somehow they're not quote unquote, quote unquote, normal, uh, that there's something different about their brain that may require medication for the rest of their life, which is not something most 18 year olds really want to sign on to. Mm -hmm. So it did change. And, um, uh, it's, I think, the nature of these illnesses in how they blossom, uh, that they can look different at different times. I think it's such an important port point, Dorothy, and it's one we hear both through our clients. I know in my brother's experience, we had two different clinical providers within a very short period of time say absolute opposite things. One gentleman said, I would stake my career on the fact that your son does not have bipolar disorder. And the other one said it was one of the worst cases of bipolar disorder he'd ever seen. And we're talking in a you know, two to three week span. And if you're a family of lay people without any medical or clinical knowledge, you know, on the one hand, how do you move forward with a plan if you don't have the data? 
Um, the flip side of that is if the professionals disagree, how do you move forward with the plan? You know, I, I always draw the analogy in the medical field. It would be like somebody said, you may have cancer, you may not. And the treatment courses are completely different depending on whether or not you do or you don't. So it's, a, it's I think, a particularly unique feature to behavioral health that makes it extraordinarily challenging um, for families to navigate, not to mention in situations when family members are at an emotional height of, you know, really exhaustion or fear or frustration. Um, I guess one question I have for you is when you think about your journey, were there certain assumptions that you made that you now look back and say, boy, that was naive or, or choices you make or made at that time that you would have done differently? Yes, I can think. So in the beginning, uh, we had a physician who had worked with our daughter on her ADHD. And he claimed to know her better than anyone, which was probably the case. He also claimed to be an expert on bipolar disorder and interestingly, did not think she had bipolar disorder. I was looking then for someone to treat what I thought was Kitty's depression and reached out to a friend who was a retired psychiatrist and she referred me to somebody. And I wound up in a situation where my daughter was being treated by somebody who really did not have the clinical experience to recognize what she was had right in front of her. And sent my daughter off to Egypt with six months supply of antidepressants and only learned later that this physician did not follow up with meetings or communicate with me when my daughter stopped communicating with her. So I think one of the naive things was to think that, oh, well, if someone's a psychiatrist and they say they treat bipolar disorder or depression, they therefore know everything there is to know. And I think this inherent trust in experts uh, is important when you're partnering with an expert. Finding the right expert is the, is the big challenge. I always point families to, uh, first of all, trying to locate the best clinical advice they can get. Uh, I think working with a physician who's seen hundreds of thousands of cases like your child will lead to a better outcome uh, than a Park Avenue psychiatrist mm -hmm. uh, who you really have no idea the depth of their clinical expertise. So I would say my naivete was thinking that a psychiatrist was a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I get that. And, and psychiatrists clearly do have areas of expertise in areas that are not theirs. I have met that over and over. So yeah. you mentioned just now that the first thing you would do is recommend to the person calling you to get expert advice on what they're being presented with. How do they get, find that? So, you know, this is local, right? You, you, your child is not likely to start working with someone who lives across the country. So I direct people toward the best mental health clinical center in their area as a starting point. Most of the families I speak with do not have a child that is at the, at the point of being 
ready to check into acute care. They're catching it before that, but they're in crisis. They're scared out of their mind. So I direct them to, you know, call up the head of the department at the largest hospital with a mental health treatment uh, capability as a starting point if they don't have any local contacts or any other ideas, because you really, this is a, there's a lot of art in this treatment. Uh, there's a lot of science, but there's a lot of art. And I find mm. it's been my experience. The best doctors are the ones who have simply seen the most number of cases. Widest experience so that they can identify yes. symptoms that seem off the chart slightly. I get that. Yeah. What do you recommend for families? That's all about the what we call the IP, the identified patient. Get the information about them. How do we get them help? Take off your fix-it role right. for just a second. What do mm. you suggest that mm. families do for themselves? Because it is crisis. So if I could turn back the clock and do things differently in my family, I wish I had spoken to somebody and maybe not the treater who was taking care of my child, but somebody else about the family piece because the effect on my eldest younger sister was profound and was not immediately apparent. And so paying attention to heading off the future problem is something I wish I could have done. And I think with good family dynamics, those things happen naturally. Uh, in our family, I'm not sure the family dynamics were so fabulous. And so we didn't have that. And I think our youngest suffered because of it. Uh, some of it was avoidable probably, but not all of it. And in terms of the relationship issues, uh, again, I, I think that's uh, couple by couple. And I'm not sure I have any wisdom since obviously it didn't work out so well. But uh, I, I think it takes paying attention to. And I, I wish people had a better understanding um, of, of the issues in front of them. And I don't know if anybody ever lays it out. I know f you take your child in crisis to a physician and they deal with the problem. They don't necessarily lean back in their chair and say, so now how are you doing? How's the younger brother doing? What's happening with you know, the father or the mother or whatever. So uh, I think that's part of what makes it hard. You know, you if you go to rehab, uh, they talk a lot about the family because they understand that uh, uh, most of the uh, identified patients are underage and they are, are existing in the context of a family. And so the family gets a lot of attention in that. When you have a, a young adult, uh, HIPAA often places that young adult beyond your reach. I, I encourage families to uh, get a, a HIPAA waiver and ask their uh, loved one to sign it. And uh, I, I'm very proud that my daughter always felt that she was, or not always, but I would say 90% of the time felt that her parents were on her side and they were her partners. And so uh, we enjoyed a very open and very productive partnership, I think, because of that. And uh, I viewed it as my job to get the physician 
information that he or she could not possibly have because she, he or she only sees my daughter once a week for an hour, whereas I might have eyes on my daughter for a much longer time and could see more symptoms. Makes sense. I think it's such an important part of this process. And, and you mentioned it in the beginning, not just assuming that the experts are going to have the pill or the solution. And I think a lot of times family members underestimate the, not only just sharing the symptoms, but sharing sort of the daily life functioning, some of the aspects of someone's holistic presentation that a psychiatrist mm -hmm. may be missing, especially if you have a smart young person who can pull it together, as I call it, for the one hour meeting. You know, they know they may or may not get the medication or they may or may not get off on the drug test. That was my brother's issue was around substances. And I remember for the hour he met with his psychiatrist, he looked like a high functioning young man and it was only when you went into his apartment and saw what what was in his refrigerator that that dynamic shifted um i'm going to switch tax a little bit and ask a, a question that not a lot of people ask but i'm curious how did money and having access to financial resources help or hinder the process with your daughter well i think any family that has financial resources has a leg up in mm -hmm. facing any illness because they have the wherewithal to get to the best experts who may or may not be living where they're living. And that was certainly the case for us. We were in New York and our daughter wound up being treated in Baltimore and then in Boston. So I think in that sense, it's enormously helpful, but you it's like anything, you can't just throw money at something and get results. And I can see how financial resources could also delay uh, families acting uh, because they might have be able to surround the identified patient with resources that uh, support them in a way that isn't isn't productive because it doesn't allow the problem to come to the fore and be addressed. But I think it is a tremendous advantage to have financial resources. I agree. I think that particularly when we're dealing with the solution-oriented phase of this kind of journey, finances and abundance may or may not be helpful before that point, as you're saying, because it can delay the discovery in some ways. But once the discovery phase is done, I think that it is helpful to have resources to be able to see the breadth of professionals out there that may or may not be covered really. by insurance. Yeah. Yes. And the insurance thing is huge because most states it's not covered without mental right. uh, health parity laws in place. So that's, that's a big deal. Just the, how much the brain has been under-researched and how behind we are in so many areas of mental health uh, compared to autism, which you know, they rounded up a ton of money, they did a ton of research, they learned a lot and made huge strides. Um, uh, I'm not sure they've been able to prevent it, but uh, <laughs> mental health is so nuanced, it's the most complex organ in the brain, in the body, and so we have a long way to go. And why do you think that 
if you were to do fundraising, right? People are more yeah. apt to give to cancer. They're more apt to give to something like autism spectrum disorder because they have done a very good job. What is preventing people from really finding and channeling resources to mental health concerns? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm an expert uh, enough to answer this, but my observation is that there's some very basic research going on that's very exciting, but it's at the cellular level and how it's gonna translate into a medication or an immediate treatment, it's, it's not clear because it's not happening tomorrow. It's going to take time. Uh, but if you look at the progress made by the, um, uh, the cancer research uh, organizations out there, they, they took the long road and, and they're starting to see results. But the medications we have were often developed to treat other disorders like seizure disorder. And mm -hmm. uh, so that they're throwing tomatoes against a wall because 40% of the people are being helped by the tomatoes against the wall, but that's not really where we need to get to. And the therapies I think are fascinating. I think some of the avenues of, of this basic research is, is very, are very exciting, but it's just not around the corner or it doesn't appear to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's hard if you can't show people solid progress. And um, I think the uh, I think the therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, things like that, those have been tremendously helpful to people. How much do you think shame and stigma plays into either the fundraising side or plays into families' reaction when there is a diagnosis? Yeah, it's it's an enormous gorilla in the room. There's no question. I lived my experience and my daughter's experience really out loud. Uh, and it began with her ADHD. And I would be attacked at the bus stop by mothers who would come up and whisper, oh my God, my daughter must have the same thing. And they were desperate to talk to somebody. So uh, I found that living it out loud, it led me to resources I wouldn't have had. And it hopefully helped others uh, identify resources they needed for their children. But it's a very big deal for the identified patient. And my daughter and I have talked extensively about how to talk about it in the context of a job interview, how to, or not talk about it. Uh, you know, uh, how to be realistic about what you can do and, um, and go for the right situation. But it's, it's really a problem. And I think uh, every person is different. So there is no vanilla bipolar person and it manifests differently. And there is no vanilla schizophrenic person. Uh, you have, I listened to a highly functioning schizophrenic pediatrician on a panel mm -hmm. one time. And there are children who are friends, uh, children who are uh, schizophrenic and living in supported living situation. So just being schizophrenic doesn't predict an outcome. Right. Um, I'm not sure that's well understood. I think there's a lot of misinformation um, about this whole area. So I, I think I think we all have to live it out loud and uh, explain what it is and what it isn't. It's not a moral failing. Mm -hmm. And uh, if there's more than one child in the family and uh, then uh, 
okay, uh, the mother and the father are not axe murderers. And this is, there is no shame in your parenting style because you have a child with a mental health issue. Now, there are families where there certainly have been a trauma and dysfunctional behavior. And so obviously those things play into it. But in, in a huge number of families, this isn't anything the parents brought on. It's a genetic predisposition and perhaps environment pulled a trigger. Perhaps it's just a toxic combination of DNA strands from both sides, uh, which right. in my daughter's case, I think is what happened. Yeah. So it's a, a challenge, but I think the more of us who are out there talking about it and breast cancer was kind of a really scary topic because you had the word, use the word breast, you know, and that, that was just terribly embarrassing. So hopefully I look forward to the day when we get, uh, get mental health issues past uh, the point where breast cancer was 40 years ago. I like it. I love that. Any last comments for any listeners who are in the beginning stages here in the in a process with a family member? Um, I would encourage them to be respectful of their child's uh, wishes vis-a-vis -vis, uh, confidentiality. But I will also say, that because my daughter was so young when she was diagnosed with ADHD, I talked about it very comfortably and very matter-of-factly, uh, as I would if she had some sort of uh, kidney condition or a broken leg. Right. And once we treat it as a medical condition and not a failure of parenting, then we're, we're sending a tremendous message to the child that there is no shame in this. This is this is your genetic hand. And uh, we got to play the hand we're dealt. And how do we make the most of it? And uh, I felt no shame. And I was, I think, brought up in an educational culture of seizing a teachable moment and uh, uh, being comfortable with yourself. And I think that's just very important and very important for the patient. Uh, because my daughter has never felt that her parents were ashamed of her in any mm -hmm. way. And uh, it, the shame is, is a thing we have to avoid. Dorothy, I, I can't thank you enough for your candor and your vulnerability. I just, I have to say, it's such a nice note to end on. We get questions all the time from clients about, you know, what do I say at a wedding as to why my son isn't drinking or how do I explain this away? And I often will say, to the extent your family can get comfortable being honest, it's less likely that that person will feel strange or um, as though they are different from everybody else. And even if their brain functions differently, it doesn't make it them less than, which is what we're all trying to avoid. Um, so That's I... I can't, th I can't thank you enough for just being so vulnerable with your family's experience and candid and honest in your answers and thoughtful. And wise. You're welcome. Thank Arnest. you, Dorothy. Oh, such a pleasure to be with you. And congratulations on the work you're doing. And I know you're doing great things uh, for so many families. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you to our listeners and our viewers for tuning into another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you so choose, please uh, 
rate us and hopefully give us a positive review on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you again, Dorothy. And thank you, Diane. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.